0: Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian Startup Ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. Our Newcastle company, like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. This episode was conducted by guest host, Will Cho.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Australian Startup Series interview. Our guest today is Peter Tippett. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank
2: you very much for asking me to
1: join. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you're currently working on?
2: I've been building startups since the, would you believe the late 70s when I wrote my first software on a computerized lathe. I moved to Australia from New Zealand in 1995 with my company then, and really started getting involved in the Australian startup scene after leaving League Legal about 2008. We built our first Australian-based startup, which we took Global, um, with live TV engagement. And I left that in 2014, did another startup in 2015, and then moved north to Newcastle just over three years ago. A bit of variety of activity. You've been an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur at that for about
1: five decades now. And so you've seen the start of the whole ecosystem. What has it been like and how has it, how has it evolved?
2: Um, well, would you believe I built my first computer when I was 17? Would you believe it was one megahertz processor with 128 bytes of memory? Wow. And a hexadecimal keypad. I wrote my first commercial software on the Apple II, and that's when I first learned the experience of IP theft, where company says they'll sell it, and then three months later, they come out, oh, we can't sell it. Then three months later, they came out with their own version, and about 70% was my code. Wow. Yeah, so I've been through what they call the Web1, Web 2, and I'm actually in the process, would you believe, of building a Web 3 business right now. Wow. Every single one. Yep. Was it difficult creating uh, software back
1: then, launching your own products? Because you mentioned there was a, a business that took your software. Was there much support structures around you?
2: There was nothing. I was in New Zealand. I was building software for companies, and I actually even built my own accounting software company, which I started in 87, and that's why I came across there in 95 with it. That business today is still in business. Hmm. I left that in 2000 due to different experiences. But back then, you weren't called a startup. You were just a business. Hmm. Just a small business. Just a small business. Um, I wrote like a web server into my accounting software in 96 and came runner up in the Channel 9 Software Awards. But that was all the only accolade you could get. Hmm. And everything was bootstrapped. Yeah. When would you say that things started to kick off and what we
1: had some semblance of a community start to rise.
2: Um, when I left legal 2008 and joined the startup, it was based around the eighty twenty 20 rule as a public unlisted company. So they raised some money from non sophisticated investors. And that was an experience to see how that worked, but I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> we ended up with 180 shareholders. And managing shareholders is a nightmare, mm. especially when things don't go out well because at the GFC hit about five months after raising the money. yeah. But out of that came our live TV engagement, um, which we took global. People seen seeing it on the cricket for about six years as the viewer's verdict, where the commentator asked the TV audience what they thought. Um, and we had clients like UFC, Disney, NBC, Red Bull, Fox Sports using our software around the world. Oh. It was all started by us actually getting on a plane 2010 in August. We flew to Boston to meet the chief marketing officer of UFC. We pulled out the iPad and said, here's your TV screen. Gave him the phone and said, tell us who's going to win the fight. And basically did it. We switched it around, tried to sell. And that was on an iPhone 3. Two minutes later, he says, can you put it on our next event in Indianapolis in four weeks' time? We Went, yeah, no trouble. Walked out the door and went, Oh, god, we hadn't even put it on a TV screen yet. <laughs> um, we delivered that one month later and had it working. Wow, and that idea started back would you believe only in April 2010. So, 2010, April, we started it. We we're on air with UFC in September. Wow, six months later, we were in Brazil with Miss USA doing 65,000 votes a second, yeah, on Amazon. And hammering that away as that first real test of what we developed. Um but we must raised most of our money offshore after that. We raised, I think, about eighteen million dollars. Why was that?
1: Why did you go offshore? Was it just a lack of capital in Australia?
2: Lack of capital, the market was only just starting here and we had connections into Silicon Valley. Um but a lot of our money actually came out of Canada because it was the TV executives and the TV investors that were backing us at that point,
1: Hmm.
2: basically. And I was part of TIE as well in Australia, which is an entrepreneurial network, and we were doing mentoring and helping other startups. In those early days, it was young. There was no structure yet, and there was the level of experience. Um, What we see today is we're basically on that third cycle of experience. Yeah. But back then, there was no real founders. And as Nicky at Blackbird can tell you, raising a fund in that time, was it took him a year. Yeah. And basically when we dealt with offshore, like we did one deal, would you believe, in 15 minutes for $1.5 million. Wow. And it was in our bank account seven days later. Why is that the case?
1: I mean, it seems that Australia seems to lag behind the rest of the world. I've heard some guests say between 10 to 15 years. Would you would you agree with that?
2: Uh, yes and no. There are some here that... It, Take a chance and go with it. And moving quick, it's just the difference of volume of capital. Um, like Air Trees' announcement yesterday for thirty-five million for Web Three. Well, in the last four weeks, seven billion dollars US has been allocated to Web Three projects as funding. Yeah, um, it's just the scale difference. Um, and basically, we're we're only on second generation founders. We haven't even hit third generation founders where you got to think in the U.S., they're on like 10th cycle. Hmm. It's just experience and the willingness, but also the amount of capital. Yeah. Do you think
1: then, then it kind of roots towards like a cultural problem? Australian founders and investors just don't have the risk appetite.
2: Yeah, I'm, I was doing the raising for this business last year. We had a couple of people put money in. And then when we went back and said, this is where we're going with Web3, with NFTs, Basically, only one of them wanted to come in. The other one's going, no, I don't get it. I don't want to play in that world yet. Uh-huh. And to the point, our pitch deck has actually been structured. So it's oriented just for the people who understand Web3. If you're not into Web3, we won't even talk to you now because uh-huh. we spend all that time educating you. Uh-huh. But I've seen this before. I saw it at the start of the cloud in 2008 um, with all the ups and downs, all the furfies going on. And that business iPowl could never have happened without the cloud. Yeah. And that's what I see right now. It's just the Web3 is amazing, going four times faster than the start of cloud.
1: Yeah. And Australian, I guess, investors and founders just haven't kept up with that speed.
2: Well, basically, like, I've been, like, listening to presentations from Jason Canellales, his insider, where he had VCs pitching to you. And, like, he's done that. And the VCs in the U.S. are actually pitching to investors now to say what they can do for them, where Australia, like a number of VCs or investors, angel investors say, well, a very different attitude. Mm. And it's very interesting to see the American model. And we're dealing with some in Israel right now. And it's the same attitude is you've got a great idea. How can we help you? Mm.
1: Do you see that change over the next, say, five or 10 years? Or do you think it'll take longer for our
2: ecosystem to mature? I think it's going to accelerate. The issue is, see, Web3 is very different to the old SaaS model. So Web3 is about community. And basically, the way you raise money under Web3 is very different. Like, you'll do a pre-seed and you'll do a seed, but then your Series A will not be from the investor network. It'll actually be from your community. Yeah. And your community will start funding you, just like you do with IPOs on the stock exchange. And that's going to change a lot of habits because suddenly you as an investor who would rather come in a Series A, Series B because it's safe, suddenly now don't even have those on the table anymore. Now you've got to realize you're going to have to write checks sooner and you can't own as much. Yeah. And that's like John Henderson actually wrote in his blog yesterday. There's no more of owning 20% of a, of a company because it's going to be owned by the community.
1: Do you think that development of the change of um, ownership structures? So instead of having a series A and B, it's going to be community funded. Is it good or a bad thing?
2: It's gonna be Dow driven, but it's not gonna it's gonna be like I have with the public company. But the difference is you're doing this all remote. People have actually got to doing things to have votes. They can't just buy some shares. They have to be engaged in the community to get voting rights. Mm. And because they're also using your currency or tokens. This money will always going into a treasury to allow you to do things. So the bigger the community grows, the more everybody makes because the community benefits. So your community becomes your advertising channel, and your go-to-market channel. No more giving money to Google and Facebook. Yeah, and that's going to change a lot of activities in this area. It's quite interesting and quite fun for this massive change.
1: Do you think then, with the rise of technologies? Like this, then I guess geographical ecosystems won't necessarily matter as much. There's no, there's, there's no point having like an Australian ecosystem or an American ecosystem, Israeli, and so on.
2: Yeah, you know, it'll be like a lot more connected. Like we've already got used to it with COVID. Like the business I'm building could not exist without the effect of COVID on people's attitudes, because basically pre-COVID, only five percent teachers believe they could teach yoga and wellness online mm. COVID now over 90% of them can do it and they believe it can be done that's the change we as a people now accept online like you and me doing an interview Yeah. normally that we would have been sitting in a room together face to face and doing this not doing it over an internet connection where you're in Sydney I'm in basically Newcastle two and a half hours distance apart Yeah. and it's like my team even though they're around Newcastle we don't Actually, the time we spend face-to-face may be once every two to three weeks. Yeah. Uh, and we could be spending face-to-face, but we don't because we find it's more efficient working remote. Yeah. And that's going to change. Like, I'm talking to a company in Israel right now. I, after this interview, I've got a call with lawyers in Switzerland to set up the foundation for this project. Basically, it's a global activity, and my shareholders, well, the Dow owners, will be all over the world as well. Mm. So it's a very different – this Web3 is going to – it's coming back to the pure idea of the internet of being decentralized. But now an organizational activity. The infrastructure can support it. So now about how we think organizationally and behavioral, which is very different to hearing about the tech now. Yeah. Tech's the easy part. So far we've been talking about the support structures and infrastructure of
1: founders and investors. What about government? Do you see them as a key player in
2: Web3? Uh, Yes. The issue they've got is the speed of Web3. Like, who would have thought six months ago NFTs would have done what they've done now, where this month, last month they did $9 billion in transaction volume just on OpenSea. But you can see, like, India yesterday announced that they're going to do a 30% tax on crypto. So they can start taxing you um, because... That's the only way they're going to get access to it, which means inherently they're going, well, it's here. The Pandora's box open. We can't put it away. we are going to manage it. The problem is governments move, moves too slow, and companies are going to work really hard to manage that. Yeah. Um, like for us, like us looking at Switzerland, why? Well, Crypto Valley and Switzerland is like where Ethereum and all them are, and there's a lot of talent there, but there's also... The legal structures are there. We were considering Singapore three months ago, but Singapore has been changing the rules. And that's a big difference.
1: It's interesting that you, you mentioned this because it sounds like there will be a brain drain towards geographies that are more friendly, that have more friendly policies.
2: Well, we won't, we're not moving ourselves. We'll keep a subsidiary here, which is running the business and doing everything. Mm. The engineering will spread around the world because that talent is talent. And with the whole online world, it doesn't matter where it is anymore, as Alasing can tell you. So that's a big change and all that. So, yeah, it, it's a real headache in that way. And basically, we just got to deal with it. Yeah.
1: So, Peter, what we're doing with this podcast is to document as accurately and truthfully as possible the history of our ecosystem Mm -hmm. to inform where to go in the future. And we're trying to reach all the corners of the ecosystem from founders, investors, policymakers, and students. Pick any one of those or all of them. What's on your mind that you feel like all of them need to hear?
2: Well, I say I moved out of the Sydney startup scene three and a half years ago. So I haven't been networking, haven't done the face-to-face the same. And I found... In the regional, there is a lot of talent up here, but it's not noticed. And that talent's having to go to the city. But now with remote, we don't have to. And I think basically COVID has allow, allows now regional to actually be thought about properly, um, which has been the major issue, as I see for regional. Regional's now valuable, like the facilities we've got, like the university here in Newcastle. The whole top floor of a brand new building is dedicated to co-working space with the latest technology available. And then the three floors below have got all the creative industries. So you've got access to green screen rooms, sound recording, video, and the people who are doing it. The creators and that, which is what Web3 really supports, are going to come from those places. Oh. And that's thing. And like in the Hunter where we're doing, there's a lot of heavy deep tech going on. But I've noticed it's very much from being in Sydney to being regional. Regional feels as though it's forgotten. Mm.
1: So what I'm hearing is even though there is this greater recognition of regional ecosystems and talent due to COVID, it
2: still largely goes unnoticed compared to the metro areas. Yeah. Well, you look at what Tech Central is doing. It'll centralise and it'll pull lots lot of people in. The brain drain is going to come out of the regional, but a lot of people go, well, I don't want to go to the city. I want to have a lifestyle. Mm. And I can have a lifestyle by working remotely. So then the whole centralization model starts to break down. But then the issue is it's face-to-face networking is the most powerful tool to communicate like. It's been easier for me to talk to investors internationally than to talk locally. Oh. Because internationally, I'm already used to doing Zoom calls, and I'm doing that on a regular basis, where down in Sydney, I have really, haven't really tapped the investment community in Sydney at all, which is a very different... Thought process is like I'm only two and a half hours away, but rather deal with other people around the world.
1: Hmm.
2: So it's a very different game.
1: Yeah. What sort of form would you want the recognition to come in? Is it infrastructure development?
2: I think it's more like I can see what in Newcastle we've got the fuse, we've got Campify that's now public, we've got a lot of the startups. Are starting to appear like they're on people's radars and getting acquired or invested in and the money's actually coming internationally like some of those checks are being 20 million checks 20 million dollars that will start getting us recognition but it's a slow process mm. and that's the whole thing it is a lot slower than being in sydney where you're basically in those hubs where you're face to face the speed of communication the speed of growth is essentially faster yeah As I talk about when you're doing it through this, your bandwidth is through a little pipe. But when you're face to face, the pipe is massive and the amount of information that you can pass. Um, And that's why face to face networking or going to face to face events works so well. Yeah. But like, I got to come down to an event next month. I got to be there for three days. I got to pay for four nights accommodation. In Sydney, that's $1,200. Thank you very much. Yeah. And that's the other thing. It's just for regional. Travel becomes annoying. Like my co-founder lives in Byron.
1: It's just allowing greater, greater use of technology, really, to facilitate the process instead of having to physically just be there. That's the disadvantage of regional.
2: Yeah. And we're a lot more okay with remote. I still find the Zoom models and that are very, they're the best we have right now. Yeah. I did research in video conferencing, would you believe, back in 2001. <laughs> wow. The team I have, we built a a whole video conference system for Doctors Without Borders, and I had a Sun Micro as the machine encoding everything, Yeah, like a Sun mini-computer which is the size of the filing cabinet. (laughs) And your video size was 240 by 320. We now are doing video at 720 and 15 frames per second still, um, which is basically why we get fatigued because we're only operating at 15 frames per second when we're video conferencing.
1: Yeah.
2: And we see it 24 frames per second. Technology's got to go through another jump that Australia has an MBN. It's not that fast. I'm a Kiwi. My brother in law rubs it in every time I go over there. He says, Oh, come here and have a play of my system. He's got a fiber to the house, one gigabit synchronous connection. <laughs> it's like to your house. Like my laptop died three hours before flying to NZ. My screen died. So I took my spare one. Got to my parents' place, plugged into the network. Four hours later, I downloaded my whole old laptop via the internet where I had it backed up onto, my, onto that laptop so I could work. Wow. Wouldn't even contemplate it here on the NBN. Yeah, we're barely pushing 50
1: megabytes per second.
2: You know, I'm like, I've got about 100 meg here and about a 20 up. Um, and if I go 200 metres um, close to the river, I've got 5G, Would you believe is 800 megabits per hour. And 80 up hmm. on 5G. But there's not many people on it, so I can be at that speed. That's, I think, going to hold us back. Yeah. Is our speed of internet.
1: So, lastly, Peter, this is the advice question. If a brand new entrepreneur or founder came to you, you know, given all your experience, mistakes, and wins, what's one piece of advice you'd want to give them to increase their
2: chances of success? Happen to the mental network. Like I'm a mentor at the university and we run a program called Bench Mental Services where they allocate two or three mentors to a startup. So you don't get one-eyed view, you get a view from three different people. So you actually get a proper view of what's happening. And that's to me, is talking to other people who, who have been there, but they're not over far ahead of you. They may be three months or six months or 12 months ahead of you. So they've felt your pain. Um, too many of them mentors are advisors. They're accountants or lawyers and all that. And they'll give you what advice. But you want founders. People have been there and felt the pain, have the scars. And I've got a lot of them mm-hmm. over the years. But it's been able to get to those. But it's so hard because there's so many startups being created every week, and there's only so many founders. I'm part of a thing called Lunch Club, and every Thursday at 12 o'clock, I'm connected with somebody randomly, and we have a half-hour talk or an hour's talk about things. It's just teaching new founders just connect with people, and it's not about going to networking events because you only get to talk to them for five minutes, and you're going to move on to the next one, somewhere where you can actually talk to a founder for an hour. Yeah. How would you suggest that the startups differentiate themselves? Uh most startups don't know what they're building in reality until so they've built it and then they realize then they find the piece, the little gem, the diamond and the rough. But most you've all got to go through the pain. We all tell us we've got to go through MVP, we've got to go through the link canvas, we've got to go through all those processes. And we do it all online and all that. But you gotta do. You just gotta start. Yeah. And if you don't start, well, you're not going to get anywhere. Just the act of starting is the most powerful thing and being serious about it. Yeah. So many countries, I've got this thing. And I says, okay, what are you doing? Oh, I've got my full-time job. And I says, well, then you're not passionate about what you're about to build, are you? Yes, I am. Well, why you still got your full-time job? You've got to pay the bill. Well, then work out how you get to the point where you don't have to worry about the bill. Either raise some money or get a co-founder or... Work out a way. Move back home with your young. Right? I'm in my early 60s. I'm starting again. I've been another startup from scratch. I'm lucky I've got... I can look at my father. He was wiped out at 55 in his business, with the engineering business, restarted at 60. When he passed away last year, he was in his early 80s. Um, my mum's got a couple of million dollars to live off for the rest of her life. And that travelled the world and built some great product. So the age is not the barrier. The barrier is people's attitude. Hmm.
1: It's like the old adage, if if you really want it, you'll find a way to make it happen.
2: Yeah. And if you can talk to people who have actually gone through it, then you can feel confident. That's the hardest thing is actually feeling as though you're not an imposter. And that's what a lot of I've seen. Like I did um, the female founders mentoring. Just getting her to think, just getting to think beyond the box for what she her normal job is. What she ended up was way beyond what she thought, and then bringing her back to reality, but allowed her to go through that experience of expanding way beyond what she could ever think of doing. Then coming back and says, Well, how can we test it and make it work and understand and get feedback? And just think of building a website. And I says, Well, why not just, you've got an Instagram you're already using Instagram, why not just use that as your little test site? And away she went. Because it's not engineering. It's actually understanding your users. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing to get people to understand. Go and talk to people. Yeah. I used to get sick of when startups come and say, oh, I can't talk to you about my idea, but I've got a really great idea. <laughs> like, oh, you got to sign an NDA. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Silly things like that happen and still happen. Yeah. It's been a pleasure
1: having you on the show, Peter.
2: Thank you very much. What's next for you? Uh, well, I've got a call with Xerox shortly, talk about foundation structure, but we're still we're raising money at the moment before we do our IDO or IEO, depending on if we can be connected onto exchange, which is joint interest. Because um, at the end of the day, we intend to support the yoga teachers so they actually get real income um, because now their online classes are now an asset. Mm. And as soon as you turn something to an asset, there's amazing stuff you can do it, and we've already proved that with the last six months of the data we've got. A yoga studio teacher, a teacher, with a, a one class, their class is worth has an asset value of ten thousand dollars. Wow! So, the thing about the first time those teachers who are teaching are now building an asset, which theoretically they could actually borrow against to buy a house. Who would have thought that? Yeah. That's how big a game changer. I'm seeing in this whole world right now is IP is now able to be put in the hands of regular people to convert into assets. Instead of the top musicians that have been doing it for the last 20 years or TV shows, Mm. regular people can access the same type of capability now. And it's not hard to create content now. Yeah, Just looking at us doing this podcast. Yeah.
1: Where could the audience go if they wanted to learn more and connect with you?
2: Um, Easiest way is my LinkedIn profile is peter tippett easy to find um, or my twitter handle is peter underscore tippett to our audience i hope that you found it incredibly valuable until next time